turn to 1 John with me, please. And consider the question, do you know God? <clears throat> How sure are you? There's two options ahead of us. One is eternity in heavenly peace, and one is eternity in hell. It would probably be wise to uh, be certain and not... Uh, uncertain. So turn to 1 John with me. We'll look at uh, how we can start to answer that question. We've been in 1 John for a few weeks now. Um, John, of course, is writing this in his later days. He's probably in his 80s at this point. Um, he was a witness to Jesus Christ. He introduces the start of the letter saying how he was with Jesus, spent time with him, heard him, touched him, was around him. He's reassuring about who Jesus was, and he's writing um, to people who know the Lord. We know that from as many references to that throughout the letter. These are people who are believers. They know Jesus. Um, possibly in the city of Ephesus, where John had ministered in his later life. But he's writing to people specifically who know Jesus and who also are being faced with a lot of untruths about Jesus. Um, some of this teaching that they're suffering through here is going to evolve into some Gnosticism. And one of the things they're suggesting is that Jesus was not, uh, not real. He wasn't a real person, but sort of a... Uh, an apparition or a projection. And of course, without Jesus being real, there is no real sacrifice, no propitiation like Gil was just talking about. Another thing that was sifting through parts of the early church at this time, especially in Ephesus where he was writing to, is that uh, there was a, a, a need to have extra information or more knowledge or something in order to really know God, to really be stepped up into being part of that club. And so John, in order to counteract that, he's writing against these falsehoods, and he does that by focusing on truth. We've been through this again and again over the last few weeks about the necessity of truth. John talks about his witness of Christ. Christ's life was true, it was lived, and it was perfect, and John witnessed it, as did many others. He talks about the truth of their fellowship that they have together with Christ and with God. He talks about the truth of Christ's role and Christ's righteousness and his forgiveness of sins, and he talks about the truth about our relationship with God. And that gets us to our verses for this morning in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we know him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Lord, that's a hard walk to emulate. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we look at it and think about it and discern it and uh, puzzle over it over the next few days, that you will teach us, Lord, about the depths of it, about the truth of it, and that it would be useful in our lives, God, as we yearn to be more like you, to emulate that walk better, to follow you better, to keep your commandments better. I pray, Lord, that you would be instructive in this time we have together, Lord, and thank you for this fellowship. Amen. So, do you know God? I know that in my youth, I uh, started attending church, and after I confessed um, Jesus Christ as my Savior, I, I wondered many, many times if I was really saved. For years, I didn't really feel confident about my salvation. And you could maybe blame that partly on 
being in a Methodist church, you may blame that partly on growing up in a sort of Catholic and uh, almost Puritan-esque kind of culture um, where what you did really mattered and it was the effort you put out that made you a good kid. And with my life continuing to have sin in it, even as it became lesser and less intense and less the default of my life, even so, as there was any sin, I always wondered, am I really saved? Because I didn't understand First John very well. And particularly these verses. Does that ring a bell for anybody else? I didn't have a concrete assurance in my mind or in my heart. Because I continued to see sin in my life, and I understood that, that sin is incompatible with God, and so I reasoned that, that I must be out of step with him and, and, and out of his love again because of that. Because God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, right? First John 5, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And yet, if there's darkness in my actions and darkness in my thoughts, where do I stand? And just for the record, I've yet to meet anybody who wouldn't have to confess the same thing at some point or another. John continues in chapter 1, verse 10 to say that if, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. There's only one perfect life, one perfect person, and that's God and the life lived out by Jesus Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 calls him Jesus who knew no sin and became sin for us. Because of his perfect life, he could be both the perfect sacrifice and the perfect sacrificer, an unblemished lamb and an unblemished priest. Only he could be called Jesus Christ the righteous. That's how John labeled him in verse 2 that we looked at last week. Jesus Christ the righteous, able to both obey and to be perfect. And I don't know if you've noticed, church, but uh, we can't obey the law perfectly. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise. <laughs> We've discussed that a few times the last few weeks. Every man sins. Plain reality. John's been clear about it as we've gone through this little letter. We can't obey perfectly. But that's why John explains that when we sin, we have an advocate. I was verse 1 of chapter 2. There's grace. When we sin, and we will sin, make no mistake, there's grace. God draws us closer and closer through that. You can see a picture of this in the Old Testament in a bunch of places, but in Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel the prophet, is, he's instructed to give some pretty tough prophecy to the people, but look what it says there in verse 19 and 20. It says, this is the Lord speaking, then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. When Jeremiah speaks of the new covenant to come, and the difference in it, he says, or rather God says through him in Jeremiah 31, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So where formerly there was the law written in stone and given to hearts of stone, there's now... Christ, the law fulfilled, the law made flesh and given to hearts of flesh. The law becomes written on our hearts and not just in our hands. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Jesus says that in Luke 6, 45. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You notice it's not the other way around? It's not out of the overflow of the mouth that the heart learns to love? <laughs> the overflow of the mouth leads to boasting. 
read Proverbs and Psalms and really, well, most of Scripture. The overflow of the mouth leads to destruction. <clears throat> but when the heart is filled up with goodness, then that's what flows out of our mouths. There's, there's proof in the pudding, so to speak. And John, John says the pudding matters. So if we look at 1 John 2, verse 3 for a moment, consider it. It says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Do I know God? Here's our test. Here's how to know if we know God, if we keep his commandments. And when I first approached that as a teenager, and even much more recently, <laughs> I will admit, it made me worry. Is he saying that the only way to prove that we know God is to obey the law perfectly because we've just been through that? We know we can't do that. John has made that super clear. Our verses from just moments ago make that very clear. We can't obey the law in its fullness because only Jesus can do that and only he can become that perfect sacrifice. So it's hopeless. <clears throat> we can't know him. We don't know him if the test is to obey his law perfectly. We'll never, ever make it. If that's our test, then we all fail. We get Fs across the board. There's no bell curve on that test. <clears throat> if that's our test, we are doomed. One of the things I love about John is that he's a feisty guy, right? Son of thunder. We also call him the apostle of love. Because this test that he's telling you is not to try to get you to fail. When I was in college and, and in graduate school, uh, there were a couple of professors who seemed to think it was their responsibility to weed out the weaker students and to make as many struggle and fail as possible. There were classes where half the students would drop out by midterms. And there was almost a gleefulness about seeing students fail, about having to make them admit they couldn't hack it. But thankfully, there were many more, by far most, professors who saw it as their job not to get you to fail, but to get you to succeed. They would take extra time with students. They'd study outside office hours. They'd rephrase things, reteach stuff if necessary, give extra advice. They'd tutor and so on. And there was a joy that they had about seeing students succeed. And not just passing the class, but knowing the material. Because their goal was not to get people to give up, but to get people to learn it because they loved it. They had such a joy in it. Loved it so much they wanted that knowledge to be shared. They wanted that joy to be experienced by others. They wanted that knowledge to be spread. And if we think about who John's writing to here in 1 John, it's easy to tell what kind of professor he is. He's writing to vulnerable believers. They've been hit broadside by false teaching and lies about Jesus. And what John wants more than anything, he, he wants to convince them not that they can't hack it or, or to condemn them for being preyed upon, but to encourage them to remember the truth that they did know. To help them to recall the good knowledge, the gospel that had been shared with them. And to give them confidence in the truth of who Christ is. And therefore confidence in their own salvation. That's what John's after. He says, my little children, my dear children, he says, listen to the truth and have faith. He wants them to know that they know God. So instead of looking at this as a, as a test against our faith, we should be responsible to the scripture and look at it as a test to encourage our faith. And yet, still a test. No matter how nice your professor is, you've still got to pass. 
It's still a test. Let's look at a couple of the words more closely here in verse 3. I think that'll help. Let's look at that word, keep. We'll know we know him if we keep his commandments. So what does that mean to keep his commandments? Does it mean to never violate them? Because if so, John has just contradicted himself. In chapter 1, he went to great pains to say that we do, in fact, sin. With that word keep, for those of you who keep in track of the Greek, is tereo. And it comes from the word to, to watch, as in to stand watch, to be on the lookout, to stand guard. You can see what that means if you go to the Gospel of John and, and look at chapter 2. This is right after Jesus performs his first recorded miracle. He turns the water to wine at the wedding in Cana. And we see what happens there in John 2, starting in verse 9. It says, When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. And that's the word there, kept. It means to guard. He's saying, look, you cared so much about having your guests have an enjoyable, good time that you, you stood guard and protected and looked after that good wine until it was later in the evening. You go to John 12, and I'm just using examples from John just so we see how he uses this word. And Mary pours out the oil or the perfume on Jesus' feet and wipes it with her hair. People standing around get all indignant, and Judas pipes up. John chapter 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Jesus says she's kept this for his burial. She's guarded it. She's watched over it. She's held it dear, and she would have had to. Matthew chapter 20, verse 2 tells us that a, a denarius is roughly equivalent to a day's wages for a laborer. So take out all the Sabbath days and 300 denarii, that's a year's wages. And I don't know about you guys, I don't have a lot of stuff laying around my house that's worth a year's wages. Some of you might have a brand new car that approaches that maybe, but nothing as small as a jar of perfume that you could tuck under a cloak and sneak out if you were feeling like you wanted to snitch it. She would have had to watch out for it, care for it, protect it, as she awaited the opportunity to anoint the Savior with it. One more example, John 17, where Jesus and his disciples, except for Judas, who's already left to betray him, they're talking. Actually, Jesus is doing most of the talking, which is usually a good way to proceed. In chapter 17 of John, he, he begins this incredible prayer, and he does several things in this prayer, including uh, reinforcing his own deity, but Let's just look at how he talks about keeping his sheep in John 17, verse 10. And Jesus is praying here and he says, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Keep them in your name. I kept them. I kept them, he says. Certainly not saying that he obeyed his disciples, but that he held them dear. He held them close. He guarded them. He watched out for them. 
He was a lookout for them. He cared for them. So when John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, that we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, that's, that's the word that he's using. We're supposed to care for Jesus' commandments, to watch out for his commandments, to stand guard for his commandments, to keep watch over his commandments, to protect his commandments, and to cherish his commandments. I can't give you a, a full enough sense of that word. We'll let the Holy Spirit do that. And I do want to be clear that I'm not, I'm not trying to convince you that we don't also have to obey Jesus' commandments, okay? Keeping them is not lesser than obeying them. It's not less important or less vital or even less of a challenge to do that. It's not a lower level kind of keeping, but it is a different word. The word for obey in the Greek that comes up in situations like Mark chapter 4, where Jesus calms a storm on the sea and his disciples freak out and they say, Who can this be? The wind and sea obey him. It's the kind of obligatory allegiance. Obedience is good. But Jesus is talking about something more. John doesn't even use that word for obey in his writings. Instead, here and elsewhere, he uses the word we see translated as keep. It's not less than obedience. In fact, I would say that it's the heart of obedience. It leads to obedience. Certainly, this is how we try to instruct our children, right? When they're very, very young, sometimes the point is just do what I say because I'm your father. But as they begin to have any kind of understanding, you have to tell them, this comes out of love. Don't obey me just because I'm here, but because you love me. That's the goal. That's what I long to see my kids grow up with. And this word, it aligns with John's reputation as the apostle of love or as I've called him, the apostle of truth. We should, we should love Jesus' commands so much that we hold them close. And of course we obey them. So we cherish them. We keep watch over them. Now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So if we hold dear and guard and keep watch and protect and cherish and love those commandments, that's how we know that we love him. And John has talked a lot about our walk we need to walk in the light, he said in chapter 1, verse 7. Our lives need to be lived out in the light, loving Jesus' commandments. And we then have fellowship with each other and with the Lord. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. Love those commandments and obey. It would be wise probably to look at what those commandments are. One more example from John chapter 21. Jesus is on the shore where Peter and several other of his disciples, including John, have gone out fishing after Jesus' death. And they're out there, and they don't catch anything because they're supposed to be fishers of men now, not fish. And then Jesus tells them to put their net on the other side, and they catch 153 fish, I think it is. One of those weirdly specific things. They recognize Jesus, and they come back to the shore, and Peter and Jesus, they have this little heart-to-heart. Because, of course, Peter recalls that he denied Jesus three times the night of his arrest and no doubt feels devastated and ashamed by it because he had boasted that he'd never deny Jesus, right? It's easy to boast. It's harder to love. Let's just read a few verses and see how their conversation went on the beach. John 21, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is a a beautiful and instructive passage in a whole bunch of ways, but specifically with regard to what we're talking about today, I want you to notice what Jesus says and what he doesn't say. He asks Peter if he loves him. He knows the answer. He knows Peter was faulty for denying him. He knows Peter's broken in his heart. He knows Peter made a mistake. He knows Peter loves him. He doesn't ask Peter about what he'd done wrong, because he already knows that too. And moreover, Jesus has already died for those wrongs and risen again. He's already Peter's advocate with the Father. He just asks Peter if he loves him. Not because he doesn't already know, but because he wants Peter to recognize it too. How important is this to have Peter fully understand and drive home the importance of it in light of his failure? He wants Peter to know that that his faith isn't broken and that he hasn't become a stranger to God because of that sin. When Peter says he loves him, Jesus doesn't say, well, then why didn't you do what I asked you to do? Anybody guilty of that kind of rebuking as a parent? And Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Not because feeding livestock was a commandment of his, but you see that that's a result of the love that Peter's supposed to have for Christ. And a result of the kind of love for his commandments that he's supposed to have. That meeting in chapter 21 of John is, is not about the things that Peter had done wrong. Jesus asked if he loved him. He knows that we're going to fail, that we're going to have issues. But when we do, he is our advocate. He demands our obedience, but more so he desires our, our love so that we would turn from disobedience and into obedience because of that love, that we would keep his commandments and hold them dear. This would be a good time to point out that commandments, that word there, it doesn't mean laws. It's not the word for laws. It's the word for instruction or, or precepts or intention. And the words that John gives us in 1 John 2 verse 3, it's more about love than law. Just for example, let's see how Jesus pairs those two things. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you, Jesus said. And this is John 15, 14. And John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. John 14, 21. Or John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You see those things go hand in hand? <clears throat> Makes it very plain there. In the middle of John's gospel and many other places that love is evidenced by keeping his commandments. And those commandments, by the way, are very, very simple. John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Which echoes what he had said in chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And you know this, church. I know you know this. This is not a surprise to you. If I was going to ask you, where are Jesus' commandments, you'd you'd point to these verses, right? Some of the first places you'd go. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, these are some of the first verses you should learn about what it means to be a follower of Christ. What it means to be changed by faith in him and what it's like to be a new creation. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And his commandments are to love one another. It's very, very simple. 
This does not need to be overcomplicated. <clears throat> it doesn't need to get in the way of our assurance of our faith. And what was happening in the, the place that John was writing to was that things were getting in the way. The false teachers in that community of faith that John was writing to were teaching that you needed some kind of special information or action or knowledge to really know God, to be assured that you were included. But John says, no. He says that what God would ask of us is the same as what he asked Peter on the shore. Do you love me? And if you do, if we do, we'll keep his commandments. We'll have a love for his commandments. We'll watch over his commandments. We'll stand guard over his commandments. We'll cherish his commandments. And our lives will be lived in the light. And we'll have a pattern of endurance and honesty and obedience and compassion and faithfulness and righteousness. That'll be our lifestyle, not darkness. Sometimes there'll be little blips of darkness. I am an idiot sometimes. Anna will tell you. Unless she's being really nice. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. But I'm really blessed to be married to her because she loves me tremendously and has always been an example of this kind of selfless love that, that the Lord talks about. And I know that when I do or say something stupid, that she has a deep and continuous and long-standing and rich love for me that undergirds our entire relationship. And because of that, that she's not going to lash out or seek revenge or whatever it would be. But that love is going to temper and instruct how she responds when I'm dumb. And our love for God is not exactly a spousal love, but it should be undergirded by the same kind of enduring love, persistent love, long-term love. And it's a deep love that overwhelms any immediate incident so that we don't react too harshly or too quickly. And that over time, that, that deep love begins to, to even out all of our ups and downs until we become more steady. And we gradually become more like him. We're going to see that change because of that deep, undergirding love. We should see change. And fortunately, the truth is that knowing God will come from the change that he makes in us. Not from some outside source or from some human knowledge or, or super ability of my own, but from, from the very thing that God said he would do back in Ezekiel. That's why we read those verses. <clears throat> I will give them a heart of flesh and not of stone. And furthermore, as, as Jesus promises, I will send the counselor, the spirit, and he will dwell with you and be in you. And what does the Holy Spirit do, church? This job description is fascinating. One part of it, John 14, verse 26. But the helper or the comforter, that's the same word parakletos, that's the word that, that John used for Jesus as the advocate when we looked at 1 John 2, verse 1 the other day. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So how do we know and keep Jesus' commandments? No, nothing there. <laughs> the invisible Holy Spirit. <laughs> but what a role he has, right? Sometimes the Holy Spirit gets a little bit of short shrift and discussion of the Trinity, but if we didn't have him, we would be totally sunk. We would fail the test every time. It's him who teaches us all things. It's him who, who makes times like right now worthwhile, that it's worth gathering as a body and studying his word together. The Holy Spirit makes that worthwhile. <clears throat> and it's him that brings to our remembrance all the things that Jesus said and taught. He reminds us of Jesus' commandments and not just reminds us of them, 
but enables us to care about them and cherish them and love them and obey them and keep them. That's part of his job. And it's a gift for us. And that's part of what separates the believer from the unbeliever. Part of it is the Holy Spirit. You can't expect unbelievers to act like believers. Sometimes they will. And they might even fool you for a little while. That's part of how false teachers end up in the church, like places John was writing to. <clears throat> People can act in parallel with the Bible. They can act similar to the commands of Christ. It's like when you're driving down the highway and there's a frontage road that goes alongside it. Okay? You're, you're both following the same basic path. That road has access to businesses and homes. There's just lots of opportunities to turn off of it. And you can be on that frontage road going right by the highway, and your GPS will tell you that you're making progress toward your destination. But eventually, that road's going to run out. And in the same way, an unbeliever may act similarly to how God calls us to act in performing good works and being kind and charitable and all these things. So that they, they may seem to be headed in the same direction. But in time, that road always runs out. Always runs out. And only one path continues forward. <clears throat> Without the Holy Spirit, you can't, up, you can't be on that path. And you end up like verse 4 in our text this morning, which says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Anyone can claim to know God. Anybody. The devil could claim to know God, but without his commandments, without keeping them, without loving Jesus so much that you, that you excitedly and lovingly keep and watch over and cherish and love and protect and guard and obey those commandments, without that, you're a liar. But the truth, the truth is beautiful. If you keep his commandments, if you love him. And scripture is vociferous in its denunciation of hypocrisy, like we see in verse 4, of saying, yes, I know God, but then not living it out. Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart withers. And this is especially true of people who claim to know God, but live otherwise, like the false teachers that John's concerned about. Same kind that we see in, well, different variety. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, those of the circumcision, it says, when it states, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and disqualified for every good work. What comes out of our mouths means nothing if our hearts aren't aligned with it. And having our hearts in line and loving his commandments results in love. Revelation 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. What we love, we practice. And Jesus put it pretty simply in Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things which I say? Turns out the lip service isn't worth a whole lot. Our actions are going to back up what's really in our hearts and What's in our hearts needs to be the keeping of his commandments. So contrast that hypocrisy from verse 4 with what we see in verse 5 here in 1 John 2. But whoever keeps his word, whoever cherishes it, loves it, watches over it, guards it, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Keep watch over it, and the love of God is perfected. My love of God is perfected, and his love is perfected in me. That's connected directly with verse 6 which says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. In chapter 1, 
John said very clearly, we need to walk in the light. And the thing about a walk, the word that he uses there, is that it's not an event. It's not a task. It's a continuous thing. I know we've been over this before, but walk with me through this. It's ongoing. We are walking. We are going somewhere. And we ought to be going somewhere with the love of God being perfected in us and us abiding in him, spending the time dwelling with him and deepening that relationship knowing him better so that we can better love him and walk in him just as he walked. It's got to match. Let's see what John says about it later on in chapter 3 of this little book. He says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Our lives have to reflect it. And I would love to go and continue teaching through chapter 3 and and 4 and 5, but the truth is we're not going to finish this book in one Sunday, and I won't get to be here to teach through the rest of it with you. So I would encourage you to read it and then read it again and then go back and read it again. And I'm serious about that until the the very simple themes of truth and righteousness become commonplace in your mind and they become constant in your heart and they become the content of your lips. One thing John emphasizes is the truth. We know that. Righteousness is another. We know that. Love is another. That's what we've been talking about today the focal point of Jesus' commandments and the keeping of which is the the evidence of our being with him. Let's just very briefly, since we won't get to go through it all together, just look at a couple of verses coming up in this letter. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14 there says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren evidence of our move from a body of death to eternal life with him is the love of the brethren. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says, and this is his commandment, the commandment from God, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. What is that commandment? Verse 21 of chapter 4, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Again, it is so simple. It's so clear. It doesn't need to be made difficult. Don't let someone make it difficult the way that things were happening there in Ephesus where John was combating things. First John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Noticing a theme throughout this book. And his commandments are not burdensome. Amen? Yeah, rejoice in that. They're not burdensome. This test, how we know that we know him, it's not supposed to be burdensome. It's not supposed to kick us out, to disqualify us, to to weed us out like some kind of cantankerous professor who's nursing an inferiority complex. That's not its purpose. (laughs) That's not what it's for. He's writing to believers. Keep that in mind. He's writing to believers, people who already know the gospel. Just like you guys know the gospel. This test is to reassure us in the truth. We need to understand why John's writing this book. He said in chapter 1, verse 3, that it's so that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And there's more motivation in verse 4. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that uh, I write these things to you so you may not sin. So he's writing to us so we can have fellowship with God. And so our joy will be full. 
And so we may not sin. And then in chapter 5, verse 13, right toward the very end of the book, you see another layer of his motivation in writing. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Important that he's talking to believers. That you may know that you have eternal life. There is a certainty in that. Not that you may wonder about it, but so you may know, you who believe in the Son of God, that you have eternal life. He doesn't want them to fail this test. Hebrews chapter 10, just a couple more verses and we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. First Peter lays it on even thicker. Chapter 1. These are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because they're, they're written by that man that Jesus confronted on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias to ask him if he loved him. A man who at that point had every, every earthly reason to doubt his own faith and to doubt whether he really knew God. He wrote these things. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, not even Peter could screw it up, and undefiled, not even I could mess it up, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept, there's that word again, by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is his work, and he who promised is faithful, not because of us, because of him. And so because of that, we ought not to waver. And just to head off any inklings that this might sound too easy. I didn't say it was easy. I said it wasn't burdensome. It's simple. But there is no getting around the fact that our lives must change and that that change is sourced from him. We're supposed to be a light and not a light hidden under a basket, but visible. Even just those verses from Hebrew I just read, Hebrews I just read, uh, he said our hearts need to be sprinkled from an evil conscience. We need washing in pure water. It takes work to be on the lookout and to be standing guard and to watch and protect and love his commandments. We need to change. Fortunately, we have a helper in that, in the Holy Spirit. We need to love him and his commandments and grow in our affection and our love and our cherishing of his words that we can keep them better. And I overheard just yesterday a really good example of this. One of my daughters had been complaining about being treated unfairly and Anna had pulled her up onto her lap and she was talking to her and she was explaining that she wasn't trying to make her feel bad because she loves her. And she said, every day I pray to God to help me love you more. Not because my love for you isn't good enough, but because I love you so much that I want to love you even more. And isn't that how we ought to approach our God, church? <laughs> Shouldn't we love him so much that we want to love him more? To walk ourselves as he walked and to keep his word that his love might be perfected in us and to have the truth in us and to know that we know him with a full assurance and to trust that he is faithful, and that his sacrifice was not for nothing? That would be effort well spent.
and that would be an assurance that we can depend on. I pray that you would depend on that in the days and the months and years ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your assurance, for your provision, for your propitiation, God, for your justice and the mercy that we have in your Son. Teach us, Lord, through your Spirit. Instruct us, remind us of the commandments that your Son gave us, the instruction, the teaching, and the example, that we may learn how to better keep your commandments, Lord, that the world would see a light, not just of just obedience, but of a cherished love for you that leads to obedience and a full joy in you and your word. We love you so much, Father. Amen.